This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. The program is called Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest today, Dr. Marianne berghaus Gerst, who will be speaking to us from University of Cologne in Germany. Dr. Gerst will be speaking of the issue of German-Afro-Deutsch relationships, and particularly the story of one extraordinary individual who paid with his life during the Holocaust. Welcome to Seldom Said, Marianne. Hello, and thanks for having me. It is certainly my pleasure, our pleasure, I should say, more properly. I wonder if we could start with a rather personal note. Can you give us a bit of personal background, uh, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Um, I'm an Africanist. Uh, that is, I, um, I, I'm... Um, teaching um, African studies at the University of Cologne, but I'm also um, a historian focused on colonial histories, especially German colonial history, um, and the history of Africans in Germany. So these are my two special subjects um, I, I focus on for many years now. This may seem a, a rather obvious distinction, but in American parlance, when one speaks of African-American studies, one speaks of pigment. And I realize from reading some of your dissertations and papers, you speak of culture. Can you clarify the distinction as Europeans view African studies? We try in what we call post-colonial studies um, not to talk about race as something belonging to biology, but something belonging to, to the, the fields of politics, sociolo sociology, society in general. So um, it is a question of um, skin color, um, but a question of what is the p position of the, the individual of the person in the society does the person itself um, thinks or thinks of, of uh, him or herself as being of color or um, constructing um, themselves as being white and what does the um, predominantly white society thinks of um, any given person is the person white or is the person black or is it of color these things change um, through time. So um, we are rather careful here to, 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 to speak of race in general. In dealing with uh, culture and the avoidance of race, is there a tendency to investigate more firmly and formally than we do here the essence of a culture, the Arado, the Riorba, the Hausa, is there a tendency to understand the people and their way of life and then deal with everything else? 
I think it depends on, on, on what you focus on in your studies. Um, of course, if you study Yoruba culture, for example, or I had a speciality in um, the, the people of the northern Sudan, um, you try to, to um, understand their culture their language and everything that belongs to, to that. But if you focus on um, people of African descent living in Germany, um, you have a, a different focus, of course. Um, first of all, um, are there, for example, these people, um, are they born in Germany? How do they define themselves as Yoruba or um, Nubians or whatever? Or are they, they defining themselves as German? Um, I think um, the important thing is, at least for me and, and other um, colleagues who um, focus on post-colonial study, to, to listen to, what, um, to how the people define or construct themselves. Do you feel academically that there is a significant Afro-Deutsch subculture within the Federal Republic? Yes, there is. Um, there is a, a, a Afro-German community, um, which was, um, yeah, a bit of of hidden from the general public. I would, uh, I would say, because um, it was and still is one of the problems in our society that um, many white people. Um, don't know or don't recognize or don't accept that there are actually black Germans and 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 have been for about at least 300 years. Um, that's a problem here and I think that's an, a fundamental difference to uh, the United States or Great Britain or, or France because um, there are many more people of African descent in, in these countries um, and um, they are, I would say, more or less accepted as being French or British or um, US American. That doesn't mean that there isn't racism, of course. But Afro-Germans, um, they all have the experience that white people whom they met for maybe about two minutes um, ask, where do you come from? Hmm. Um, and um, for example, um, if the answer is oh, from Berlin, um, people would say, ah, oh, yeah, okay, but uh, where do we really come from? Ah. Always, it's what we call othering, yeah, always showing, um, showing the, um, the Afro-German that um, they do not really belong um, here because we are a, a white, a predominantly white society. Though even after two minutes knowing someone, they ask and ask um, until the person, uh, for example, admits that um, uh, their father or mother or even grandmother or grandfather um, was born in 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 any in in uh, an African country, and then they say, "Oh, okay, that's what I thought from the beginning. You're not really German." And I think that's a difference to to the situation. And of course, it's it's um, it's um, yeah, it's a sort of of racism, of course. And it's it's uh, it's a way of of again and again showing people of color that they do not really belong here. Mm. That is implicitly a white society.
That's both provocative and interesting. Uh, it's rather strange. Last evening, late, I had a conversation with someone who was Southern European, and he was speaking to the same issue in regard to Sicily, saying Sicilians have been called Moors, North African, and yet you must understand they're Sicilian, they're Sicilian, they're different. And there is this distinctiveness we always use to label. And yet the finest baritone, I've mentioned this to us before in conversation, the finest baritone I've ever encountered in Wagnerian opera is Nigerian born. I could listen to him until he just lulls me off to rest. So in a sense, it seems we're missing some things, but perhaps in time and place with miscegenation, it might be corrected. I wonder if we speak to this area of study of yours, Marianne, was there an epiphany, a moment? This is a rather unusual focus for a Central European academic. It would be unusual here on this part of the, on this part of the pond. But what prompted you to go in this direction? Yeah, there actually was an epiphany of sorts. Um, I was uh, searching for um, um, a, a subject or a topic for the public talk one has to um, deliver at the end of the so-called um, habilitation procedure, which uh, in Germany is a sort of postdoctoral lecture qualification one has to acquire in, in Germany for professorship. Um, I was looking for, for um, an interesting topic and um, I was in the Federal Archive um, of Germany in uh, Berlin, or it was uh, uh, then Potsdam in, in Eastern Germany. And um, yeah, only by, by chance I, I, I found a letter um, which um, uh, talked about a, a man named uh, Mohammed uh, Husen. Uh, who had been transferred to um, Sachsenhausen concentration camp during the Nazi period in 1941, um, to be exact. And there was a, a, a second letter um, uh, from which I could um, uh, understand that this Mohammed Husen um, was a teacher of Kiswahili at the university in Berlin. And that was the moment I, yeah, I was, I was rather shocked because I realized that I had never thought about what happened to black people during Nazi Germany. And I was rather ashamed because as an Africanist, I, I should have thought about this subject. Um, I had been interested in um, uh, this period of history from very early on but yeah, at that moment I had finished my studies, but I had never thought about this subject. And this word was uh, some sort of epiphany because um, yeah, I started to, to research um, at first what had happened to this um, Kiswahili teacher. Um, uh, was he released after a certain period of time? What happened to him? Did he survive? And so on, um, yeah. That's what, that was uh, the start of my focus on Afro-German history. I do know when I mentioned his name to people I do work with, I've done extensive Holocaust studies, 
there also was the surprise. Uh, who was this? Where is he from? Was he simply a German who had one black parent? It is intriguing. Have you found uh, any other studies of his life? No. Yeah, no. no, you are the yeah. only one. Um, when I found the, these letters, of course, I, um, I did a, um, a thorough um, search for any kind of, of literature um, on Africans uh, during the uh, during Nazi Germany or the Holocaust. Um, there was um, a very a small study, not about him, but about blacks um, in generally, by an American, Robert Casting. Um, who worked at the uh, Washington um, Holocaust Memorial yes. um, Museum. Uh, there was a small study uh, uh, by him uh, on the subject, but that was that was all. So um, um, I was the first one um, to to thoroughly or systematically um, study um, the fate and history of. Um, Blacks, Africans, or Afro-Germans um, during the Nazi period, and um, Mohammed Husen, who, whose real name was Mohammed Hussein, um, he made it sound uh, more German uh, um, during his stay here. Um, he was born um, in 1904 in um, present-day Tanzania, which was then German East Africa. Um, uh, German colony. Um, both his parents were um, were Africans. His father was from Sudan, and uh, one of the first soldiers um, subscribed for the German colonial army in East Africa. And his mother was um, from um, German East Africa, the German colony. So um, yeah, he was an African, and. Um, when um, at the outbreak of um, World War I, um, he was also um, subscribed for the colonial army as a child soldier. He was 10 years um, at the outbreak of World War I and he became yeah, a, side, a child soldier in the German colonial army. It's incredible. That's something pervasive to our present day. Right. There is yeah. an, an incredibly complex story of German participation with African subjects or associates or colleagues or fellow soldiers during the First World War. Can you give us a bit of pricey? It's uh, an awkward question perhaps to put to you, Marianne, but a bit of history as to why African studies in Germany and African history in Germany is so different. I'm not quite sure that I understand what uh, what you mean. Um, you, African studies in Germany is rather focused on African languages. Is that what you? African languages background, but for instance, uh, dealing with the colonial period, the Arado and persons of that sort. In many other countries, there is a concentration on placing one's hand over a foreign culture and controlling it. In the case of uh, World War I and the associated process with Germans, there was almost this feeling that the cultures 
became an amalgam. They became a kind of composite. Am I overreading the distinction? Um, I think within the German colonial army, in the German colonies, there was some sort of amalgamation of um, soldiers uh, from different um, ethnic backgrounds. I don't know whether this is what you um, what you were what you are re were referring to. Um, there was an amalgamation of um, uh, soldiers from all different ethnic groups, um, for example, in uh, in German um, East Africa. I do know that the reputation of uh, German African soldiers as guerrilla, as persons who participated holding the British at bay, is extraordinary. It's odd in that I'm finding the same distinction with the American indigenous in that the tribal groupings I work with send people into the American military for whatever the reasons they so choose, but there is this porridge of a mix, mm. which continually intrigues me. Uh, one wonders why they don't turn away and fly their own flag and follow their own sunset. Why uh, Africans of German descent and Africans native born served and served well and served with honor and afterwards were treated with respect. Can you give us uh, again that short precy or history of how far back, I know it's an awkward question, but an overview of how far back the relationship goes. Um, in the colonies or um, in the former colonies? In the former or, colonies and as a culture. Um, yeah. Um, one must keep in mind that there were only rather few Germans actually in the colonies. And they never, they never could have defended um, the colony against, uh, for example, the British or Portuguese or, or French people in, in the colonies. So- um, Marianne, if I may, we're one minute away from our first okay. break. It's a fascinating yeah. thought and I'd like to hold on to it. Okay. Our guest is uh, Professor Marianne Burkhaus-Gertz. We'll be back in a moment. The program is seldom said. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Exquisite guest today, Dr. Marianne Berghaus-Gretz, who will be speaking to uh, the African-Deutsch relationship and studies. Professor uh, Berghaus-Gretz is an associate at the University at Cologne in Germany. Welcome back. Uh, Marianne, if you would continue with that thought. Yeah. Um, the Germans, um, the rather few Germans in the colonies um, were dependent on the support by um, the Africans in, in all, um, in every which way possible. They needed um, uh, Africans to work on their plantations and they also needed Africans to defend the colony against uh, the other European 
um, uh, colonial armies um, and um, of course the other people living in different parts um, uh, adjacent to the German colonies. So um, there was a relationship of um, dependence between them. Um, uh, and um, also there was a lot of pressure um, for um, Africans, um, I would say, in the German colonies um, to, um, to, be, um, uh, to be part of, of the, the colonial army and um, to defend um, the German colonies against, um, yeah, against resistance, against local resistance, which was found everywhere and which was um, regarded as highly problematic um, uh, by the Germans. So um, they, there was a constriction of um, many different um, uh, ethnic groups in the colonies uh, to become part of the colonial German army. I do remember, and I'm dating myself now, but as a young child, relatives coming back from the war, and they often spoke to the acclimatization of Germans to American musicology. I remember an uncle always using the term der bingo. So many Germans were saying, ah, oh, they love der bingo. And then I realized in my five-year-old mind, it was Bing Crosby. You are a musicologist in the vein yourself. Why the correlation? There's a series of documentaries out now that are being shown on Netflix and African-American soldiers are speaking to the issue of how Germans and Africans got along because they both loved to dance the same way. Why the link? Why your own interest? I think after, the, after World War II, um, it was a, a feeling of freedom to be able to listen to American music, to listen to, to jazz music, for example, um, which was um, forbidden during um, Nazi, the Nazi period. Uh, there is a very good book um, by uh, an American cater on uh, forbidden jazz during Nazi Germany. And after the, um, um, the end of the war, yeah, Germans were allowed to listen to the music, musicians were allowed to, to play this kind of music. And of, of course, the, um, the Americans um, coming to Germany after the war, they brought with them, um, yeah, American music. They brought jazz, they brought, uh, yeah, uh, blues. Um, yeah, they brought it, it with them. And uh, I think, yeah, it was, it was, uh, um, uh, um, it was yeah, the feeling to be free to to listen to this kind of music, to to move and, and dance to this kind of music. I know that uh, I've often found, perhaps it's my own ear, there is a love affair of the long note in German and American music. Lisa the Schnee, something that in a sense involves you holding one's breath and singing a phrase over a long period of time. I know during World War II, there was a, what has been called in this country a swing kids movement. When research is done of that, was it a serious attempt on the part of German youth 
to adapt and adopt Western culture or simply an aberration? No, I think it was was adapted by 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 German youth, and it became um, it became the rock and roll movement, the German rock and roll movement um, in the fifties. Uh, then, uh, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, Germany was Americanized um, in the late forties, and then in the fifties. Was it not uh, highly controversial during the war? There was During the war, it was controversial. Yes. It, it was it was forbidden. Yeah, mm. but as uh, jazz music, for example, was um, uh, was for, forbidden. Uh, what uh, the Germans uh, often called uh, yeah black music, or, or as they called it, then Negro music. Um, all these um, uh, these different types of music, they were forbidden um, uh, under the Nazi. Nazis and yes, uh, and that was part of why it was feeling like a feeling of freedom uh, afterwards, where every, everything was possible. And for example, African Americans were um, in the German cities, and and people got to know African Americans and welcomed them into their families. There are stories and studies of. German musicians, Reinhardt, the great jazz guitar player, he was Django Reinhardt. He was uh, so marvelous, so ingenious, that even my own father, who was a guitarist and a musician, was drawn to his playing. Has there been a series of studies of the German wartime jazz scene? Um, yeah, they have. There, there is this uh, this study by by Cater, um, he, uh, an American um, historian or, or musicologist who um, has written a book book about um, uh, jazz during the Nazi period. Of course, there was, uh, although it was forbidden, and it was uh, it was dangerous to. Um, to play uh, jazz music, there was an underground jazz scene even during that period. That is, a, it's entirely fascinating. It's incredible how pervasive American musicology is. Perhaps that's because we are a little bit of everything. We're not distinctive as a culture where it, we're a composite, we're a porridge or a jello were something that needs to be separated by ear, nose, throat, and eye. Can we at this point segue, Marianne, to a bit of the story of Mohammed Hussein? Because it yeah. is so extraordinary. Can you tell us a bit about the man? Um, yes, as I said before, he was, um, he, he was a child soldier. And uh, after the Germans had um, lost um, the war in 1918, um, German East Africa became British and um, many of the soldiers who um, had fought in the colonial army were lost because um, the Germans had to retreat to Germany, the British overtook um, the colony and um, the British didn't like 
the Germans because, uh, yeah, they feared they would be too, um, too truthful to the Germans, these former soldiers in the colonial armies. And so Mohammed uh, Husen, who was still very young, he was, he was lost at, uh, as well. He couldn't find a job under the British. Um, he, I think he identified very much as German, even when he was still living um, in Eastern Africa. And so um, in the um, 1920, um, he started to work on a ship which um, uh, th that went between um, East Africa and Hamburg in Germany. And in 1929, finally, he decided to, uh, to stay in Germany, to go to Berlin and, um, yeah, and settle, uh, settle there and uh, to try to make a living in Germany. What was his area of expertise? Language, linguistics? Not actually linguistics. He <coughs> taught his mother tongue, Kiswahili, at um, the university. Um, at, at that time, um, German universities uh, were convinced that Africans could only teach their language, but not linguistics. So mm. um, um, every language teacher had a German, a white linguist at his side to, as they thought at that time, properly um, teach the linguistic background. So he taught um, um, taught Kiswahili at university. He was was only uh, he was also um, a language informant. That is um, um, academics who um, wanted to um, to study to re to do research on Kiswahili um, used um, texts, songs, uh, poems. Um, that he um, he wrote down or recorded for them uh, for their academic work. In simply pronouncing his name, Muhammad Hussein, if the name is extrapolated to Hussein, was there a parallel religious factor in his associative with the German psychology? Was he a Muslim man? He was a he was a Muslim. Yes, he was a Muslim. Um, his father, which, uh, who came from Sudan, was was um, uh, presumably a Muslim too, and um, so was his son um, uh, Mohammed. Um, but we don't know anything about uh, whether he actually uh, was a religious person um, during um, his time in Germany. He married um, in, in 1933, he married a German woman. Um, and um, yeah, we don't know who, who, who presumably was, uh, uh, was Catholic, um, but we don't know whether he practiced um, his religion at all um, or whether his children became Catholic or, um, or Muslim. Uh, we don't know anything about that. We just know that he, he married uh, a German, um, a German woman, um, but um, teaching at university wasn't his only profession in Germany. He was also an actor um, who, during his time in Germany, um, had uh, small parts, um, small speaking parts as well um, in. Uh, 
yeah, about um, 10, 15 uh, films um, who were produced at that time. The Germans produced, for example, um, yeah, um, colonial films during the 30s because uh, there was a movement in Germany um, um, engaging um, in uh, retrieving the lost colonies um, mm. and um, producing films um, uh, who propagandistically um, showed the German public that the Germans were very good colonial masters um, and that that, that um, uh, it was their right to um, regain uh, their colonies. And for these uh, propagandistic colonial films, um, yeah, actors uh, of African descent, Afro-Germans um, uh, were needed. And this was a chance for, for him, for example, to, uh, to act. Um, in his first film in 1934, for example, um, he played um, um, a signal giver that was um, um, that was um, a thing that especially those uh, uh, child soldiers um, did during the the war in the colonies, giving signals um, in the field, um, especially in, uh, during the night time. So um, in his first film, he played um, a part, um, yeah, that actually corresponded to what he did as a child. Only he was at that time, of course, he was 30 years old when he, when he had to play uh, uh, a child soldier or signal giver in this uh, uh, propaganda, propagandistic film. That's, that's a fascinating story. And there is nothing more than the magic letter that you found that colors in the spaces of this extraordinary gentleman's life. There has been nothing else that has been found. Oh, no I found, I found point. other letters. I found other papers because he wasn't, he wasn't a, a quiet person. He thought he was con convinced um, that he had certain rights living in Germany mm. um, because he had been a soldier in the German colonial army. He was convinced he had. Um, uh, a right to be, for example, financially supported by the German government, um, to to yeah to to be uh, supported in 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 getting different jobs to support his uh, support his uh, family, and also that he had a right, for example, to obtain a military uh, decoration for serving in the German colonial army during World War One. So. Um, uh, he wasn't. So, uh, he wasn't someone sitting quietly in a corner and being happy to be uh, to to live uh, a quiet life. Um, he he fought for his for what he thought were his rights as an African, having fought um, for the Germans during the war. There is an effort, and you have mentioned these multiples of letters that the gentleman does procure and use. There was an effort on the part of certain commanders at the end of World War I to give credit to their African conscripts. Did anything in your research come of that or was it just a passing fancy to give them the credit and respect as veterans of the German cause? 
Yeah, there was, it has a sort of, a sort of um, mythic quality, um, what the Germans called uh, the truthfulness of the African soldier who had stood by their leader, um, Paul von Leto Vorbeck in East Africa, right until the end of the war. Um, that was some sort of myth. And uh, Paul von Leto Vorbeck, the military leader of the um, East African colonial army, he constructed himself as um, a special friend of these African soldiers. But when Mohammed Hussein, uh, for example, applied for this military decoration, um, they wrote to Leto Vorbeck and asked him whether um, whether an African, Mohammed uh, Hussein in this case, should be decorated um, um, with this. And um, yeah, and Leto Vorbeck answered, no, no, they shouldn't. This sort of military decoration should be reserved for white soldiers. So at that point, I think um, uh, it, it became clear that he wasn't actually a friend or a supporter of these African soldiers. We're within a minute of our second break, uh, Marianne. These are incredibly interesting propositions and questions. Racism seems applicable to any man's language in any time and place. We'll be back in a moment. Our guest is a Dr. Marianne Berkatz-Götz. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Very special guest. Dr. Marianne Berkhaus-Götz, who is a scholar by any language's definition. I am struck when you told that story just before the break, Marianne. There's a story attributed to General Patton. He needed black soldiers during the Battle of the Bulge to fill in the gaps in the line. When it came time for decorations, he simply segued it was almost like that jazz riff that we've almost talked about where you go off in a different key. He kept on saying, well, you have to understand, you have to understand well, well, well. And they did not receive the commendation. It uh, is interesting. I am curious, as I'm sure the listening audience is, what happened to Muhammad? How did he step away and find himself at Sachsenhausen, which is a horrible future? Yeah, it is um, because of his his um, actions. For example, applying for this uh, decorate decoration, applying for money all the time. He was always short of money, although he had several jobs. He was always short of money. But what really got him into trouble was um, uh, his involvement in multiple extramarital relationship with um, white German women. At that time, relationships like that were highly dangerous. Um, at some point, for example, within six weeks, he became um, he became a father twice with a, uh, a child from his wife and another from a woman he had an affair with. And um, yeah, he had uh, many 
uh, affairs with uh, white German women as a black person in Nazi Germany. So um, finally, in 1941, he was accused of um, what was called uh, racial defilement. Uh, it's Rassenschande uh, in German. Um, uh, in German, there was a law that prohibited sexual relations and marriage between Germans and, and non-Germans or what was called then called um, non-Aryan um, people. Um, initially, that law was um, primarily applied to, um, to Jews in Germany, but later it was extended to other groups too, including uh, uh, black people. So he was accused of, of racial defilement and um, that was the point where he was transferred to a Sachsenhausen concentration camp in 1941. Is there any record as to what happened to the women who he was associated with? No, I tried to find um, to to find anything uh, about these um, these women, but I couldn't find um, a name or a document. Uh, with a name uh, uh, in it. So I only know that his, um, his wife um, divorced him after he was transferred to uh, Sachsenhausen uh, concentration camp. Um, uh, I think it was because it was a, a dangerous situation also for a white woman who, uh, who was married to a black man that uh, she divorced him, but uh, it might also be that finally she she wasn't willing to accept all, all his affairs um, and and uh, thought it, it might be dangerous for for her children to um, to be um, to still be married to to a black person. I guess what we're saying and saying rather perviciously is that uh, promiscuity is not a rationale for the death penalty. It was carried to extremes. Is there any story of, or evidence? I know there are stories of Anne and Margot Frank behind the wire. Is there any information in regard to Mohammed Hussein in the camp? Um, yeah, even in, in, I think in, in the Sachsenhausen camp, he wasn't really um, a quiet um, uh, a quiet person who, who wasn't seen or heard by others. So um, we have um, a picture of him um, as a prisoner in the camp, which was drawn by, by another picture, uh, by another um, prisoner. Uh, and um, it's a very colorful picture. And, and yeah, if, if when you look at the picture, you, you see that he is still, um, Still, very a very a very, a very self-conscious uh, person, uh, and still thinks of himself as uh, as an agent, even in this very difficult situation. Uh, it's it's a, really a very impressive picture that was drawn by him, and um, another uh, prisoner who was in Sachsenhausen at the same time wrote about him in his diary, um, in his prison diary. Um, and he's, he quotes him saying that uh, the situation in the camp is uh, far worse than uh, living um, amongst the wildest, uh, the wildest tribes of Ethiopia. 
So there's a quote um, in this diary um, by someone who met him during his time. Yeah. I have a heroine in my own life, my own youth. She is a tall, thin, emaciated, aged black woman standing in a doorway, having signed an electoral paper saying she would appear at the polling place. And in her Alabama small town, she would risk it all to vote aye or nay. She is a heroine. Is Mohammed Hussein an academic hero in your pantheon? I, I'm, not I'm not sure about that. Um, I admire him for, yeah, for his stance and for, for being so convinced uh, concerning what, what were his rights and, and feeling, feeling like a German or, or constructing himself, identifying himself as German. Um, at the same time, researching his history, I, I again and again thought, oh my God, what are you doing? Don't you know how dangerous this is what you are doing? So yeah, it is uh, between these two poles or extremes that I, that I, yeah, I regard him. Has there been an effort to more popularize his story have you found a, a marketability and associative discourse as to putting his story on screen? Far less interesting lives have been lent to cinema. I think by now he is he is um, ah, he is a bit famous in Germany um, because um, yeah, based on my book uh, on my biography um, of him and his life. Uh, there was, for, uh, for example, um, a documentary about him, uh, a film um, about him. And also um, uh, there was, uh, he, he now has a, a, a little stone of remembrance in front of, of his last residence in Berlin um, that I initiated. So many people walk there. Um, it is uh, rather central in Berlin. Um, uh, see this uh, stone of remembrance and also there um, uh, there have been and still are um, activist groups for example who want to name um, or, or rename a, a street um, that at the moment uh, uh, has the the name of uh, a colonialist um, a colonial mass murder, uh, for example, renamed uh, this street, Mohammed Husen Street. So he is, um, yeah, he is, uh, he is well known um, in certain circles in Germany by now. If you would uh, respond to the next question, you can accept it, you can smile in that quizzical way of yours that gives me an indication that perhaps we'll go on to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> but in point of fact, it would seem that Germans have had the conversation that our President Obama has said that we need to have in this country about race. It would seem that in regard to Jews, in regard to African-German relations, 
The conversation is alive and going on loudly and well in the Federal Republic. Do you feel that that environment in your own perception is more healthy than you foresee it on the other side of the pond? I think um, what happened last year um, when uh, the Black Lives Matters movement um, found its way to Germany, um, it became clear that um, racism is systemic and structural in Germany and that many people had never thought about the situation of people of color or black people in Germany. And that they are, yeah, that, and many people have gotten very defensive because they had to think about their own position as white, um, white Germans um, in, this, uh, in this discussion about racism in Germany. So I think we have in Germany, the same as I think in other European countries and in the United States, still a long way to go um, to, um, to really deal with racism, to accept that there is racism and that there is a need for change um, uh, with regard to the relationship between white people here in Germany and people of color. It is rather interesting that race is not a connotation in the German census. Is there the possibility that in future one would perceive of being German as simply a state of mind? I hope so. I, I really hope so, um, that, it, um, that it will be. But of course, it, we still have, still have a, long way to, a long way to go. Um, as I said, uh, when we started, um, it, it's still very difficult to, um, to um, accept for many people that there are Black Germans. And in a sense, it's also a question um, of... Uh, white power that um, mm. people of color, yeah, that people of color put into question. They ask, why do white people define everything in our country? That can't be the future. And of course, many white people have have a problem with that being questioned, white power being questioned, white supremacy being questioned, and um, yeah, to lose the power of, def of definition. Mm. Have you any plans in the near future to visit the States? I do know, speaking personally, I would be honored to share the experience of meeting you with colleagues. Has there been a thought on your part of pursuing no. that? No. No, to be, to be, uh, to be honest, um, I was, never really attracted by the United States. That might be a question of, of the generation <laughs> and the time, uh, the time I grew up in. Um, but um, yeah, it is as it is. 
Although, of course, I would be very much like be honored to meet you in person, of course, in the United States or in Germany. It again would be the honor. If you were to close your eyes, click your heels, second star on the left, to paraphrase Barry and Peter Pan, where would you like to awaken? Where would you like to go and visit and share? I don't, I, oh, that's a, that's a rather difficult question. Indeed. Um, yes. I think everyone has or, or hasn't, I don't know, has a bucket list. <laughs> and, I'm much older when it comes to <laughs> Yeah, one point on my bucket list is to be in um, in Stonehenge in in Great Britain uh, uh, on the twenty first of June. <laughs> so, just to see people there at sunrise. Indeed, indeed. Welcoming the new day. A bit of a poet and the druid at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Your personal plans within the next academic year is simply teaching on campus? No, at the moment um, I'm I'm not actually teaching on campus, but um, doing a lot of work um, concerning Germany's um, colonial history. Um, to, uh, for example, to develop some sort of um, remembrance walk. Uh, renaming of um, of streets, um, uh, the question how to deal with certain monuments um, that are to be found in in, in Germany. Um, all this is part of 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 uh, yeah what I would would call my activist side, um, and there is a lot lot to be done. Uh, I think during this year. Um, Focusing on, on, on Western Germany and, and North Rhine-Westphalia, uh, what, was, yeah, what was the role of this part of Germany during the colonial period and how are we going to, to, uh, to remember uh, this? What kind of, of uh, remembrance culture do we want to have here? Does immigration have the same impact with you and there? as it has with us, with a new administration, with Chancellor Merkel stepping down, is immigration an issue? I fear that it will be. Um, I'm not sure how it will, um, it will work out um, after Angela Merkel has left office. Um, I think, yeah, we have to wait and see. Can you share your book title and the information publisher and so forth with the listening audience? So for those who would like to read your work and take pleasure in your scholarship, they can find it easy enough to do. Can you share the contact information? The book on Mohamed Husen, you mean? Most certainly, yes. Yeah, it's called Treu um, bis in den Tod, Truthful Till Death. Um, from uh, German East Africa to Sachsenhausen, from Deutsch Ostafrika nach Sachsenhausen. It's written in German, unfortunately, I'm sorry. So, um, yeah. Is there There's only... Your... Please continue. 
Yeah, there's only a little information about him uh, written in English by now. I always hope that my book would be translated into either English or Kiswahili um, so that it uh, could be uh, read also in, in today's Tanzania. But unfortunately, it wasn't to be. I, I do know Swahili audiences would be greatly appreciative of the opportunity to read it. We are coming to the end of what has been an exquisite experience. We certainly appreciate the time, the effort, the moment that you spent with us. I hope these aren't last times. I'm hoping there's a PS attached to our relationship and our lives. I would really enjoy that, yeah. And yeah, thank you again for inviting me for this talk. It is my pleasure. Our guest has been Marianne Berkhaus-Gerst. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Be with us again. Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.